Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When the temperature heats up, people living in cities are often even hotter. That's because the parking lots, roads, and human activities in cities cause the urban heat island. Victoria Ludwig is the National Program Manager for the Heat Island Reduction Program at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She is here today to explain what urban heat islands are, how we can reduce them, and why the EPA is concerned. Victoria, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. I'm thrilled to be here and talk about my favorite subject. Well, great. Great to have you. And it's certainly a subject that I know a little bit about as well, given my research over the years at NASA and the University of Georgia. Um, We're going to get all into heat islands and EPA's uh, efforts in that regard. There's a question that I ask every single Weather Geeks guest, but I don't know if it applies. You'll have to tell me. I often ask people how to become a Weather Geek. But in this case, how'd you become an urban heat island geek? <laughs> yeah, good, good point. Um, yeah, I consider myself a climate change geek and specifically a heat island geek. I think I got into it mainly through my role at, with local governments. Um, all, all my career, I've worked either for or with local governments. So I'm really aware of what they can do in their cities to solve all kinds of environmental problems. And then the climate uh, work that I've done through policy, working for government and nonprofits, there's a connection there between what policies can be used to reduce the the impacts of climate change and heat islands. I you know, I live in a heat island here in Washington, D.C., and so it's very um, it's very relevant to my daily life. And I've always been fascinated with how things come about, how you can solve them and how local governments really have uh, everyone can help. But local governments have a key role. So I definitely am a heat island geek. I've worked on it for nine years and I hope to keep continuing for many more. And as you heard in the introduction, Victoria is the National Program Manager for the Heat Island Reduction Program at EPA, and we're going to get all into that. But Victoria, what is your background? I mean, what are your degrees in? Where where do you go to school and that type of thing? Um, I'm from the great state of Ohio. Uh, I went to Xavier University in Cincinnati, uh, got a degree in biology, which I love. I love biology as a science. And then I went to Duke University uh, to get a degree in environmental management, a master's degree. And that degree has a little bit of everything. It has science. It has quantitative analysis. It has public policy. It has economics. It's a great way to get all the interdisciplinary information and expertise you need to solve today's environmental problems. Um, And then after that, I, 30 years ago or so when recycling was still new, I got involved in that, um, advancing that throughout the country, helping to educate people and work with local governments. Again, uh, Arlington County here in in Virginia, Um, I worked to get their recycling program off the ground. And then after that, 
I I went into climate change uh, through an international environmental organization um, helping to understand how local governments can mitigate it through all kinds of ways, public transit, recycling, energy efficiency. Um, I came to EPA 15 years ago. Um, continued in solid waste, uh, but more from energy, how you can use methane gas from landfills to generate uh, electricity. Um, and that was also in local government involvement. And then I came over to Heat Islands. I didn't know much about it, but I was fascinated. And I said, I want to get all into this. Um, and I've loved it ever since. And for the record, we broke some news today on Weather Geeks. The term urban heat island geek or urban heat geek is now a thing. Thanks to <laughs> we'll, ta- we'll take it. No, we, we like cool. to make we like to make science uh, accessible and cool. That's why we've over the years for the television show and the podcast embraced the term weather geeks, because uh, what we as scientists and technologists and environmental folks do is critical to society. And so we try to sort of destigmatize the word geek in that rega- regard, because over the time, over the years, it has such a negative connotation. So thank Thank you for embracing our geekdom here on the podcast today. But I want to get right into the science now. And again, this is an area where I've worked in and you've worked in for a long time. In fact, I can't remember. We met somewhere for the first, I I believe it's some meeting related to urban heat islands, uh, maybe at the University of Georgia somewhere. It was. It was at a a workshop you pulled together with other uh, folks uh, maybe five or six years ago. Absolutely. University of the beautiful campus you have down there. We, We do. We're very proud of it as well. And we thank you for coming. But talking about about urban heat islands. Let's, you know, there are people that I think that are listening to this podcast right now that maybe have heard the term, but let's let's geek out on the science of why there are urban heat islands. Victoria, why, why are cities and urban environments warmer? Well, um, I definitely know that you can go into much more a geekdom <laughs> about it, but uh, basically it's, I, I like to think of it as a disturbance of the natural environment such that, the energy balance um, that goes on between the earth and the atmosphere, it's disturbed. Um, Normally there's equilibrium, right? Between um, the heat that comes in from the sun and is absorbed by the earth and the way it goes back out through plants and soil and and all of that. Um, What happens when we humankind came around and developed and population grew and more people moved into the cities. We, and we vented the car, um, cities got bigger, buildings got bigger. The materials we use basically, uh, the conventional construction materials, paving materials, they really don't get along well with that energy balance. They absorb, uh, quite a bit of the heat from the sun they retain it. They do release it, but they release it very slowly um, at versus how a tree or a pond does not, they retain some of the heat, but they're really good at releasing it through evapotranspiration, which is how plants release heat through water vapor. And so you just have more of that heat from the sun sticking around. And even at nighttime, temperatures stay high because of that. Because they're, I don't like to call out certain materials, but 
conventional materials that we use for pavement and buildings, they just hold on to it. They're really good at that. You, We use fancy words like emissivity and albedo. So all of that is basically a disturbance of the of the of the surface air surface earth energy balance that keeps heat in causes people to stay warm in the buildings as well as even walking around. So I think um and it's 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 also caused by other morphology how we design our cities not just the materials but the way we um have sometimes tall buildings with narrow streets that prevents airflow from coming in and cooling things down um and there's a lot of new science as i as i think you know on anthropogenic waste heat it's not just the way we design our cities and our materials to build them and how we get rid of green space to do that but we have um, all the air conditioning units that are on top of our buildings. They release waste heat. Our cars through the exhaust. Even I get I've I've heard research. Even people, the high concentratedness of our of people in a big city, releases it, it's it's big enough that it adds to the heat island effect. All this waste heat. So, um, and that's what causes it. And until we well, I can talk about more mitigation strategies. Oh, we, we're going to get into the mitigation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I know you did an amazing job. Yeah, you know, just to kind of sort of recap, you know, the, the, the things that are in cities that we build things with, like pavements and parking lots and targets and Walmarts and various places. Um, the lack of trees, as you noted, because the trees can cool things down because of that evapotranspiration cooling, those urban canyons that Victoria talked about. And the waste heat. And I just wrote a paper in the geophysical research letter sort of summarizing some work, noting that during the COVID-19 lockdowns in China, at least, there's evidence that the and let me just sort of kind of clarify this uh, before Victoria and I move on in this discussion. We're talking about the heat island, the urban heat island, but there are actually different manifestations of the heat island. There's a surface heat island, which is the if you touch the pavement out there in the parking lot, there's the what we call canopy layer heat island which is sort of the air temperature heat island there's even a boundary layer heat island we now know that there's a subsurface heat island and even an hydrological heat island so there are different kinds of heat islands but they're all related to the things that victoria talked about but during covid lockdown because of the reduction in anthrogenic activity and some of that waste heat there's evidence that the heat island values were reduced in chinese cities had you seen that story or that's uh, that study <laughs> Uh, I, I did read your research, and I think that was really fascinating. Um, also, I think what we saw is that um, a lot of cities, they, they weren't able to get people to cooling centers during the hot summers and the heat waves. And we know that heat waves are intensified within a heat island. So folks were more exposed to the heat, um, even though, as yeah, it, they... They just couldn't get to the cooling centers. They weren't opening them. So the COVID-19 pandemic has really caused a lot of interesting impacts, as you as you point out, both positive and negative. And, and negative. And yeah, I want to get into later in the podcast, I want to get your thoughts on the sort of triple whammy of the heat island, heat waves and the climate warming that we're experiencing <laughs> and the implications of that. But first, let me take a quick break and we'll come right back. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. 
There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with my colleague, Victoria Ludwig, from the EPA. Yes, the EPA that that you may uh, associate with other things, but they care about heat islands as well. Uh, And so you heard Victoria talk about why we have heat islands. And uh, as as we know, it's a big issue because guess where most of the world's population lives in cities? Uh, Greater than 50 percent live in cities, and that number will continue to grow. Uh, small towns, even if you're living in a rural area, though, small towns, little small towns can actually have a heat islands as well. How do we address the problem? How do we mitigate heat islands? And I know this is something that your program there at EPA is thinking about or at least uh, involved with in some capacities to so talk about mitigation strategies. Uh, I'm glad you asked me about that, because um, after all the you folks who are climatologists and and weather geeks talk about how negative things are with climate and heat, then I come in and say, wait a minute, there are solutions. Don't don't fear. Um, And those at least in terms of, as we were saying, the urban climate, um, the the heat island Um, and the solutions are being implemented. There are common things that are being done. There are emerging solutions. The solutions are being implemented by governments, by businesses, by uh, environmental groups and community groups. And they basically range, um, you know, there are a lot of fancy technologies related to coatings and I won't get into those, but in terms of the nitty gritty, but they basically involve as altering the built environment um, because that, as we were saying, is one of them is the main cause of it. So it's altering, it's building our cities and changing the way we design them and the way we build them to have more cool surfaces. Basically two, two ways I can summarize cool, Increased cool surfaces, which is increasing the albedo of our surfaces, buildings and other surfaces, and nature-based solutions that bring in more of this greenery and water bodies. And you can do that on buildings. You can put a green roof on a vegetative roof that will shade the building and release um, heat, as we were saying, through evapotranspiration to cool the building and the surrounding area. That's one nature-based solution. Increasing trees. Um, increasing trees, I think, is the most commonly implemented one. Um, it's not easy to do, but it's a really great way to cool our cities and cool people. Um, there are also things you can do to make roofs and pavements cooler, uh, increasing the albedo or decreasing, yeah, cooling down the surface of the streets and the pavements and also the roofs. And there's new efforts to, um, uh, I think other countries have advanced, but in the U.S., more proliferation of green walls and cool walls as well. So really making the whole city um highly uh reflective of the sun's heat so it gets back out it doesn't retain itself and absorb and stay there and then the nature-based solutions also lastly reducing this anthropogenic waste heat through energy efficiency so your air conditioners don't generate 
as much heat. They're not used as much. They're more efficient. And then also things like electric vehicles is a really, I think, a great way that it's coinciding with the advancement of electric vehicles, um, that they re they release less heat through the exhaust. So those are some basic ways, among others, to reduce that that waste heat component. Yeah. And then oh, go, go ahead. Go. No, go ahead. I was going to say, finally, um, smart growth. I think a lot of people think, I've had people ask me, well, wait a minute, are you saying we, we need to get rid of our dense cities and have people go back out into the countryside? And the answer is no, we just need to build and design our cities more, you know, smarter. And that there's where smart growth comes in, which is you can have buildings close together, but if you have lots of trees on those streets, if you have lots of green roofs, um, if you have more bicycles, that that is a way to still have the kind of quality of life that we like in a dense city, but not have as big of a heat island. Yeah, that's uh, that resonates with me because one of my former students, Dr. Neil Debbage, who's now at the University of Texas, San Antonio, talked about that very thing because there was discussion about, well, is it? densely compact cities or is it sprawling cities that uh, have the worst heat islands and there is some conflicting scientific literature on that but neil found this something called the contiguity of the urban spaces no matter whether it's sprawled or compact in terms of uh the intensity of the heat island and so uh, i think i think your your discussion there is really sort of spot on in terms of how we have to approach the solution um, you know, it's really, and by the way, let me, you know, this is Weather Geek, so I love that Victoria is throwing out things like emissivity and albedo. You're probably familiar with albedo if you've been out in the snow because you've been snow blinded because snow has a very high albedo. It's very reflective, so it doesn't absorb much of the sun's energy. That's what we mean by high albedo surfaces. Low albedo surfaces like a pavement or a parking lot sit there and absorb that heat, and as Victoria talked about earlier. So I, I am, I have to, I'm biased, I admit it, but I'm loving this geek out because this is very much in my home uh, research territory. I'm talking with Victoria Ludwig from the EPA. And speaking of the EPA, I think that people sort of understand some of the things that the EPA does. Uh, and, and shout out to Daniel Blackman, by the way, my good friend who is here in the southern region as the administrator of the EPA. I just want to kind of uh, uh, digress for a second. He's a friend of mine. Um, but I think people understand what EPA does in many areas that they may not quite get why EPA is in this space. So tell us a little bit more about from an agency perspective, why you're concerned about heat islands and these mitigation strategies from an EPA perspective. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. A lot of people think of us as a regulatory agency, a scientific agency, which we are. Um, we are interested in heat islands. Our, the mission of EPA is to protect public health and the environment quite simply. Um, and so we are we, we began being interested in heat islands um, in 1997, I think I found in the documents because I ha wasn't there at the time. But it was mainly for the, the fact that it contributes to a lot of environmental problems and it uh, impacts people's health. So it's the environmental... Um, uh, not in addition to making things warmer, as you know, um, you get a lot of coexisting environmental 
uh, impacts. Uh, the high temperatures can contribute to, um, they, they help catalyze more ozone production, um, which contributes low-level ozone produ production, which contributes to smog, which is a major health threat. It um, reduce, it When you use more air conditioning, because it's hot, you release more greenhouse gases. You, again, contribute to some of the air quality problems coming from those power plants that are fossil fuel powered. Um, and also some people don't realize that it has an environmental impact on water. Um, these, these surfaces that are impermeable, they just let the water run off. And so there's more water coming off during a storm. And some studies have shown that that water is even warmer. And then it, it has impacted fish populations downstream. So it is really the climate change. The work we do sits in the climate change area of the agency. It's not regulatory. It's, so it's geared towards understanding the science of heat islands and how the how you can mitigate those environmental uh, impacts, as well as, of course, protecting people uh, from the heat-related illnesses and deaths that unfortunately also happen. Yeah, it's very important. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the hot water runoff, the hydrological heat islands. I know some work coming out of Princeton and various other places have been kind of dabbling with that. And that's actually an area we've been kind of addressing. We've also been looking at some work here at the University of Georgia on sort of vulnerable populations disproportionately exposed to uh, urban heat in places like Atlanta and other cities. Uh, and so that's some research we have forthcoming, but others have certainly been looking at this in relationships to things like um, redlining of the past and so forth. So there is a connective tissue between this sort of urban climate research and socioeconomic vulnerability, risk and health research as well. So certainly makes sense to me that EPA would be concerned about these things uh, as well. Uh, what are sort of the what are you just give us sort of the lay of the land in terms of the, your program? I mean, what do you do? Are you an advocate in terms of information? Do you actually have programs in place or and so forth? Give us a sense of what the EPA is actually doing about the problem. Um, it, uh, I'm glad you mentioned equity because I'll, I'll, I'd like to address that too because it is part of what we do. We, um, but yeah, the main thrux of what we do nowadays. Um, back in the day, we did a lot of hardcore science, and really being one of the first agencies, uh, federal agencies, to study this issue and advance some of the solutions. Uh, but we. Nowadays, we serve as a as a way to raise awareness of the issue and produce information, technical information, um, outreach information for local governments mainly so that they can make informed decisions about policies that they can implement. These things I was mentioning like green roof policies. Um, so we have um, a technical, we have a... Um, uh, and we work with all kinds of stakeholders, uh, universities, uh, that's how I came upon you, and other federal agencies, industry even. Uh, we have relationships with the cool roof industry, very, very friendly, exchanging information mainly. Um, and it's basically to just proliferate information across all stakeholders and across the country on what these heat islands are, what causes them, and how you can uh, reduce those impacts from at a, at a local level. Another big thing we do is bring together 
I, th- I spend a lot of time facilitating connections because we are a small, a small program and there are others in the country like yourself and folks at Arizona State and Lawrence Berkeley Lab who work 24-7 on this issue. I spend a lot of time connecting people together and also connecting local governments with each other so that they can just share success stories. I try to capture those success stories and then send them out. Um, so it's basically um, a, a technical and informational uh, program, I would say. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And Josh Fexler and the Weather Geeks team gave me a gift today because we're talking to Victoria Ludwig from EPA about one of my favorite scientific topics, uh, urban climate. I mean, certainly what I've sort of made much of my career uh, bet in. And so, and Victoria is certainly one of the leading voices and uh, administrators in our federal government, the EPA on this topic. So this is quite the catch for Weather Geeks to get Victoria on the podcast today. So thank you. I wanted to circle back to a comment or something I mentioned earlier in the podcast about climate change. And yes, we can say climate change. She's an EPA and she's talking about climate change. Um, What are the implications of a changing and warming climate? I mean, as we're recording this podcast today here in the South, we're going to be dealing with 100 degree plus and probably closer to 103 temperatures and a heat index even higher than that. And in those heat island areas, it's going to be worse, particularly in the overnight hours. By the way, the air temperature canopy layer heat island peaks nocturnally and in the early morning hours. And that's when you deal with the health issues. It's not necessarily just the maximum temperatures. And so that's where the heat island really comes in. So talk to us about sort of your perspective on heat islands and the era of climate change that we're in. It's here. It's not coming. It's here. And what we expect going forward. Um, yeah, I, I I love that topic, too. As I said, I'm kind of a climate change geek um, as well. It, well, it, as I think there's a, I was mentioning the connect, connection between how the heat island causes an increase in energy use, which indirectly releases more greenhouse gases that cause climate change. But in recent years, as you mentioned, as the temperatures rise because of climate change, we have also, that 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 has impacted these heat islands. As you said, the heat islands are already hotter than the surrounding areas. When the temperatures in the, the country and the globe increase, that gets exacerbated in these heat islands, therefore increasing all these risks that I was talking about in the impacts, environmental and public health. And on top of that, We've also seen that heat waves are getting worse. Um, Research we've done at EPA as part of our climate indicators program has shown that heat waves are expected. Well, no, they currently are being seen more. They're more severe. They're more frequent and they're lasting longer because of climate change. And in addition, a heat wave 
can be it's intensified in an urban heat island. So you've got as you I think you mentioned earlier this the triple whammy um and um I was great it was great to see uh some new research or new information that just came out in the IPCC 6th assessment report kind of documenting some of this new research that shows how heat islands they're there number 1 then they get worse because of higher temperatures from climate change. And on top of that, heat waves are getting worse because of climate. Those are impacted uh, in a heat island. Um, and so it's and it's and science is showing it's just it's just increasing. So um I think that's another reason we're concerned about it at EPA. We are interested in mitigating climate change, but also helping people deal with the impacts. Um, these impacts being some of these higher temperatures. And, and, you know, as we're talking about sort of the more direct impacts of the urban heat island, I should mention that one of the there are many other things that the urban heat environment does for our weather and climate. One of the areas that I've worked on for many years is how urban environments affect thunderstorms and precipitating mm-hmm. systems. And that's very much related to the excess heat and the circulations that emerge in urban and rural environments. As you heard Victoria talk about earlier, the heat island has implications for air quality and, and so forth. Uh, runoff issues as well, these so-called hydrological heat islands that are hot waters running off into their ecosystem and so forth. So there are multifaceted ways that this urban heat island um, is a challenge or a problem for our society. So I really hope that you have a grasp on a better grasp on this because that's what we aim to do with the podcast. And I know those of you who listen, hopefully agree, tweet us and tell us if you do or you don't. Uh, But I think we try to expose you to things that maybe you wouldn't have come across uh, otherwise in in your day. Uh, And so I I think this is really good information. Victoria, where can people, if they want to know more about the EPA's Heat Island program or climate program in general, are there websites or social media sites that people can go to that they're listening right now? Um, Yes. um, The EPA web address is epa.gov slash heat islands, all one word. Um, And then also we just revamped uh, the agency's climate change website, um, including some new information on the connection between climate change and public health, which includes heat among all the other climate impacts. And that is epa.gov slash climate. Um, I'm happy to talk to anyone. Please reach out. Um, On our website, as I was mentioning, we have um, information on the science of heat islands, uh, the connection with climate change, some of these things I've been talking about today, we do have content. And then if it's okay for me to mention some of the new work we're doing on environmental justice and equity. Please do. Because you you did mention that um, another key pillar of EPA's work for many years has been environmental justice um, in terms of protecting underserved and and overburdened communities from adverse environmental impacts. In recent years, there is more research on how heat is related to this. Um, One thing we haven't talked about is these things called the intra- heat islands, which city, as you know, cities are not uniformly hotter than their surroundings. And there are, there are, there's new research and we've been tracking it at EPA and we have some information on our website, which we're actually going to update because there's new research that is coming out, as you mentioned about redlining, but unfortunately everyone is subjected to heat and is at risk. But in, in some of our cities for historical reasons, there are just the, the, the way these green areas 
and pavements and whatnot are distributed is not even. And there is a correlation. There has been shown correlations between low income and communities of color living in these hotter areas. So they're more vulnerable. And therefore, us at EPA and lots of local governments are looking at ways to really target the solutions and understand what can be done to relieve these burdens. Um, because these communities have higher risks and they often don't get all the information that they need. And so we do have some some great content on our website about heat islands and equity. And we're going to continue to expand that um, because it's just really super important. And it's a key uh, administrator, Michael Regan, really puts it as a another Southerner, as you may know. Um, he has really made that a key tenant of his administration um, to try to really advance this uh, even more than EPA has already done. Sure. And yeah, I've got a book chapter coming out on those. Uh, we call them racialized urban heat islands, actually. And so um, hopefully I'll make sure I get a copy of that when it actually comes to you when it comes out. But yeah, these are, these are issues. I mean, you know, that, that I think the, the EPA and the broader system and justice 40 initiative and many other have efforts within the federal system are trying to address. And so, um, you know, I hope if, even if you don't necessarily live in one of these uh, areas, but you're listening, I hope you can have sort of sympathy, if not empathy for uh, people that may not have adequate air conditioning or adequate access to a cooling station or, or even, uh, you know, some of the things we saw in, in Portland, Oregon and the Northwest last year, these people don't even have air conditioning. They don't get that kind of heat in previous, but in the climate change environment, they are. So, you know, uh, you know, it's important that we understand that context. Wow. We're at, we're this we're we're out of time. I mean, I, I could I could literally geek out on this all day. I really, really Me too. <laughs> uh, but but before we say our final uh, goodbyes, it's that time of the podcast where we have our geek of the week. Today's geek of the week, and I took personal privilege on this as the host, is Dr. Shandana Mitra. Uh, Shandana is a professor at Auburn University, and she has spent the bulk of her career studying urban heat and how it impacts people and places. Shandana is originally from Calcutta, India. And she was my first ever doctoral student at the University of Georgia many years ago. So special shout out there, Shandana, our Geek of the Week. Uh, Victoria, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Shepard. I can I can talk about this forever, too. And definitely, especially getting into the weeds of some of the research you mentioned, um, definitely would like to touch base more. Um, and I and thank you for um, your support of EPA by selecting me. I was I'm more than happy to do it um, and excited that you um, are interested in interested in spreading the word to your audience. Well, I, I, hope we, I hope we've recruited some more urban heat island geeks today. <laughs> and, and again, that's why we love this podcast format, because we can take deep dives on topics that maybe people wouldn't hear about in a, a, a you know, a small word, few tweet words or so forth. So again, we've got to end it here. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on the Weather Geeks podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.